On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we welcome Elizabeth L. Silver, the author of the novel The Majority, as well as the 2017 memoir The Tincture of Time, a memoir of medical uncertainty, and the 2013 critically acclaimed novel The Execution of Noah P. Singleton. Elizabeth has worked as an attorney in California and Texas, where she was a judicial clerk for the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, worked on death row cases in Texas, and sub Subsequently, in civil litigation in Los Angeles. She continues to keep a foot in the law, and her most recent legal work includes volunteering on asylum cases at the Texas-Mexico border and with survivors of domestic violence in Los Angeles. Born and raised in New Orleans and Dallas, she lives in Los Angeles with her family, where she teaches creative writing with the UCLA Writers Program. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's such an honor. As I mentioned in our kind of pre-interview chat, Kate and I are both lawyers and we both, Kate, I won't speak for you, but I think we've talked about this. We both had our eyes set on the Supreme Court. That was certainly kind of an influential part of our becoming lawyers and wanting more women on the court and just revering the Supreme Court and their decisions. So this novel was completely targeted to us. Right up our alley. (laughs) I wrote it for you too. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, why don't you start out by telling our listeners just a little bit about The Majority? Absolutely. Um, The Majority is an imagining of the life of a fictional first female Supreme Court justice of America, um, Sylvia Olin Bernstein, the contemptuous SOB. Um, And it takes place really over the course of a large swath of the 20th century from Sylvia's childhood um, in New York in the in the late 40s, all the way through her appointment in the mid-80s. And so it explores the loss. It explores her life in um, a post-Holocaust New York time frame and all the way from to law school, early motherhood, marriage, female friendship, um, and pregnancy discrimination, ultimately, that um, winds up with her position on the Supreme Court. And um, in many ways, to me, that always seemed like the closest thing we have to almost a modern throne in America. And I was very interested in exploring what ambition and motherhood looked like in a world where we live and work as the majority in the population, women, but the minority in power. And that was really mm. the ultimate um, beginning for, for me writing this book. Oh, that's interesting. You've hit on so many topics we're going to explore over the course of this interview and so many ones Kate and I continually explore on this podcast. So we're excited. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll start first with Sylvia. This is her story. As you said, she's a tough as nails, New Yorker, a woman born in the 30s. As you mentioned, she goes to law school, becomes a lawyer, and by the end of the book has reached this pinnacle, is the first woman on the Supreme Court. Uh, Tell us about Sylvia Olin Bernstein, known, as you said, as the contemptuous SOB in a nod to the notorious RBG, who I know is one of your idols. So tell us about the inspiration for Sylvia and how you went about telling what you call the intimate story of of this public woman's life. Well, you know, I think in literature and in film and, and in our culture, we're so interested in these um, these great women and, you know, their paths to power and what that looks like. 
And we're usually given, you know, a few a few sound bites about, you know, these 10 things are what you should do, or this is the great advice that RBG's mother once told her, her mother-in-law, or so on and so forth. And you read these biographies, and they seem so out of reach. And they also seem so, um, they seem exciting, and they seem aspirational, but also very distant in many ways. And I was interested, you know, as uh, I was interested in exploring the life that we don't see in those pages. I was interested in seeing kind of the, the fights that they have with their spouse or with their children. I wanted to see maybe the life that didn't make it to those pages, that didn't make it to, you know, the final 300 pages in the book or the two hours in the biopic. (laughs) Because that's life, right? That's real life for most of us. And I wanted to know what that looked like. And so I actually, when I was, I was actually driving home from San Diego to Los Angeles from a book event from my last book, when that idea kind of hit me that it was a combination of this. I had a I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and my life had completely changed as a writer, as a mother, as a lawyer, and all of these different roles that we had. And I was wondering, well, you know, we, we're all looking to this one 80-something-year-old woman as, you know, the last mm-hmm. on the court, and, you know, her life or death makes such a difference in terms of the life for millions and millions of women and, and men in, in America. And what happens if she dies? Um, and then that's one question I had. And the other question is, does she ever question herself? <laughs> Do people like her ever say, huh, did I make the right decisions or did do, do I really feel like I'm this wonderfully strong woman that everybody looks at me as? And maybe deep down I'm questioning myself. And I wanted to know what that really look like. And I wanted to explore mm-hmm. those issues. So I actually pulled out on the side of the road at midnight like <laughs> or at five. Um, and I'm sorry, not the four or five, the one one. And I just started writing, like dictating into my phone. And then as minute I've had the first couple of days, I'm sorry, that's the first couple of lines. I got back into my car and continued driving on. And then her whole life really came to me very quickly after that. And I wanted to get it down on the page. But it started off very much as this combination of So much of our laws are teetering on the life of one person. And that Mm -hmm. seemed so wild to me. Um, And the other part of it was really questioning, well, what if I relate to these women, but I'm also intimidated by them? And I also want to know if they have some of the same questions about life and feminism and what you're supposed to do um, Mm -hmm. as I did. Yeah, that is Fascinating. You said so many things that I've kind of stuck with. And and one of them is just interesting about the narratives that we create. And sometimes just in the interest of time, especially, you know, when you're telling a story about someone who has reached these great heights, you kind of have to really call through, you know, the steps that got here. And you don't always go into the doubt, the hard times, the stumbles, the setbacks, a little bit maybe, but it still doesn't quite fit in the narrative, which is what people want to hear is how did you get here? They really want to know what did work, but it often gets lost is the moments of doubt, the setbacks, the problems, the times when you thought, I'm never going to get there. I think about it just in my journey to being a writer. And I'm like, you craft a narrative and it's 100% honest. And yet, it leaves out so much. So I love that you wanted to explore it that way. And you really accomplished that. So I want to talk about Mariana. Am I saying that correctly? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, aside from a short prologue, 
The book begins when Mariana, who is one half of Sylvie's father's twin cousin, did I get that right <laughs> yeah. too? Okay. Yes. She comes to stay with the family and it really starts this whole story. And she is the catalyst for making Sylvie who she is when Sylvie kind of pushes against her or when she agrees with her, depending on what point in her life she is, um, and also for saving her in many ways. So I'd love to know more about Mariana and what inspired her character. Oh, thank you. Um, Mariana is inspired in many ways by my own family's Holocaust history. Um, and even her name is is an homage to um, a woman named Marina. Um, I'm sorry, Mariana Marisha, um, who... Um, in many ways, saved my father. My father is an, an infant Holocaust survivor, and he was born in 1942 in the Rodham Poland ghetto. And when my grandparents were taken off to the camps, my grandfather was on Schindler's List, and my grandfather, my grandmother was in Auschwitz. They basically gave this newborn, you know, he was a few months old, to this woman who was Polish and not Jewish, and she was hiding my grandfather's brother in her basement throughout the whole war. And so. She was going to take my father in, and at, uh, she got very nervous, and at the last minute she didn't. Um, and so my grandparents basically put him, my father on her doorstep. She was going to take him in, and she didn't. She decided to bring him to an orphanage. Um, she was too nervous at that point. And then he was adopted by a whole other family and raised by this whole other family um, in the Polish countryside for three years until the end of the war. And because they both survived, they came back to Rodham. And because of Mariana, Marisha, they knew where my father was. She kept track of him. And they were able to track him down and win him back after an incredibly wild story of, you know, a lawsuit and blackmail and everything. And then they they got my father back and left. Um, They went to Germany and then they came to America. And so Marisha held this place in our lives from so much of my childhood as this woman who really saved, you know, your father and was the, this, uh, the person who, uh, they're called righteous Gentiles, the people who helped save Jews during the war. And, um, she was named one of the, uh, she was named one. And then she, she basically, um, is the reason that, you know, we were, we're all here. And so several years ago, my whole family went to Poland for this first time and she had just died a year earlier. And so we didn't get to meet her. And then we went to her gravestone and we put flowers down there. And I saw that her name was Mariana. <laughs> and my whole life, I thought it was Marisha. And that was the nickname for Mariana. And so, because of her, I named Mariana, Mariana. And so that's where um, the name comes from and also the, the Holocaust background in terms of my family. And my family was also, my grandparents very much had this mentality of education is the one thing they can't take away from you. And so because of that, that's also where Mariana's, um, you know, kind of thrust towards Sylvia, keep, keep studying, keep studying. They can't take that away from you. They won't do this to us if we have this education um, comes from. That's a beautiful story, it, uh, and I love the way you honored her in this book. Um, thank you. Did you know that she would be the one that that this is where the story would start? You, she would come into Sylvia's life, and that would be where the story kind of took off. You know, she came very quickly, and and the, and I can't say that the personality is like her since I never met her and I didn't know her yeah. at all. But um, I think that in many ways there, there is. I think there's always people in our childhood, um, and, and at some point, whether you're you know two or you know you're 
young adulthood or at any point, there's somebody that really influences you and makes you look at the world in a different way. And um, for Sylvia, it, it was her mother, but really Mariana, who kind of becomes mm-hmm. the surrogate mother to her, even though she's very close in age and she could be called a surrogate big sister or surrogate mother. But in many ways, she helps kind of define how Sylvia's life will be, her trajectory. And I think that um, as a as a Jewish girl at, at that time frame, the Holocaust would be something that would be so overwhelmingly influential, but not actually just not talking about the Holocaust, just kind of the shadow of it. Because for me, yeah. that that's how I grew up, kind of the shadow of it in the grandparents. Um, and so for Sylvia, it was the same thing, something that's so mm. strong that you kind of can't look away from and say, oh, wait, no, I, I shouldn't pursue this. I, I really yeah. have to pursue this. Yeah. Powerful. I mean, you also have Linda that I want to talk about, which was uh, her roommate at Harvard, um, a black woman, one of the nine, the nine women that were admitted to Harvard Law School that year. And she fails a class and it makes no sense to Sylvie, but as a result, she's kicked out of law school. And this is one of the many stories or examples in the book where women are held back, you know, completely derailed by men and there is no recourse. And this feels like an area where maybe we've made some progress, but maybe not a lot. Uh, So tell us about Linda and what you were exploring with her character. Um, So uh, Linda, I I really wanted to explore female friendship at its core. And I think... um, as is the case in 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 this book, and I and I I love that we're seeing this evolution in literature in in the last decade, really, of this focus on female friendship as in many ways kind of a core relationship through our lives. Um, that uh, that was something that was important to to explore for me in this in this book. But I also was really interested in intersectional feminism, um, and I didn't want to explore just um, one woman's story, um, a, a one white woman's story, a, a Jewish woman's story. I wanted to explore black women's story. I wanted to explore other people's stories because they're all, we can't, we can't just talk about feminism and then and say it's there's white feminism. And that's a, I think that's a problem. And I think that's something that um, needs to be explored in literature and film and is more. But Linda's story is not my story to tell. It's Linda's story to tell. And so because of that, um, I wanted to have their friendship really explore um, kind of come from, from Sylvia's perspective because it is her perspective. And then, you know, to explore the, the evolution of it. And so while the reader doesn't really understand what's going on between them and Sylvia's kind of Sylvia's perspective of the friendship is ultimately really different than what it is as we discover towards the end of the book and I just wanted to kind of emphasize the importance of lifelong friendship in um, in between women but also how women's relationships in their careers are different based on how other people view us and that that's a problem and that we something that are hoping to change in society but it does take time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you you nailed all of that with this character and and the way you, no and the way you you presented it without taking her story but presenting it from Sylvia's point of view but including her part of the story. Uh another really gut-wrenching relationship in this novel is between Sylvia and her daughter Aviva. There, I mean, whew, there are oh, mothers a lot and daughters, there. right? <laughs> yes, yeah. 
Absolutely. And there, I mean, I could read, I marked so many passages of, between them where Sylvie's just trying to be honest and Aviva's taking it the wrong, you know, oh, she's taking it personally because it does. It feels very personal when you're the daughter of someone who is, who kind of belongs to the country and belongs to something bigger, even before she's a justice, belongs to a movement, a cause that is far bigger than her and how Aviva still kind of just wants her mom, right? You have this point uh, when when Sylvia says about Aviva, she wished aloud that I were Mariana, that I were Linda, that I were any one of her friend's mothers who were either baking cookies at home or burning their bras in the streets, nothing in between. Mm. And you really don't shy away for, from how fraught this relationship is. And also there's a moment where kind of they're, they're having a little bit of a reckoning and they, they comment that if this would be much easier and simpler if this was a father mm. and how there are different, I want to read a little bit. It's, is this the point in the movie when the son holds the dying father's hand and they decide that everything's okay? She asked, I shook my head. Then why not? She added hopeful, but flat. Why doesn't it feel right? It doesn't work that way because I'm not your father, I said, clearing my throat. I'm your mother. The rules are just different. And no matter how much we rewrite them, no matter how much we repave the roads, they will lead to different places. And the sooner we can all accept that, the more we will be seen and the more equal we will finally be. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, it's Jordan Ross Myers, the man behind Twitter's notorious Lee Radswell and Don Gunvalson. I'm inviting you to join me every week for the Pretty Corrupt podcast. Along with my co-host, reality casting director Stacey Noel Connor, and disgraced entertainment TV producer Nate Safer, we deconstruct pop culture's past, present, and future and probe the dark crevices of Hollywood taking you inside the scandals, feuds, rises, and falls of society's rich and infamous. Alongside interviews with our celebrity friends and special guest hosts, everything is fair game on the Pretty Corrupt Podcast. Every Tuesday on all streaming platforms and at storicmedia.com. So talk about this mother-daughter relationship, what you were exploring, and uh, any of those moments that really kind of uh, spoke to you and said, I need to include this in the novel. Oh, thank you. That section that you just read, I, I, when I think about it, I think about this idea of, you know, often, and I suspect you, you were asked this question as writers and lawyers all the time too, is this idea of, oh, well, who's, who's looking after your kids or how are you doing this? And it's something that baffles me, right? And, and we all want to say, well, you're not asking the men the same question, right? You're not, you're not up there asking men. And, and I remember in my last couple of books, whenever I would go on tour, have, a, have um, an event, there was without fail, literally every single event most someone would raise if it was out of town, well, who's watching your kids? Um, and and I, I thought to myself, are they asking me this because I'm a woman? Are they asking me because I'm a writer? Because I didn't get that when I was practicing law. And people aren't asking lawyers right. who are women these questions, although some might be still, so I, I'm not going to say absolutely, but I got it a lot more as a woman who was a writer. And it, it confused me. And so I, I initially wanted to respond back, well, you're not asking the men the same questions. And then I thought about it a lot more. And I thought, well... Yeah. 
I think that is also part of the problem. And, and it's something that I want to respond back and say, like, yeah, ask the men the same questions as you ask me, and then we'll be equal, and then it will be fine. But it won't be fine because we are different as mothers. And that's why I really kind of wanted to hone in on pregnancy discrimination because parents are parents. But when you focus on pregnancy, it is different. There is the nine months. There is the initial postpartum period. If you're breastfeeding, if you're not breastfeeding, that's different. But in that sense, we can't just shoot back, well, you're not asking the fathers the same question here because they're not actually going through the same experience. And so that's why I really wanted to explore practicing discrimination. And I, I kind of thought a lot about, more about saying, you know, that's responding with that same question of, okay, ask the men on the tour the same question because, you know, our professions can be equal. Our professions can be the same. Our abilities, our ambitions, they are in many ways women surpass men in terms of ambition. But if we take a look back and we look at the home and we say, okay, how can we break this down and have an egalitarian situation? We can have an equitable situation. We have to take into consideration the difference between pregnancy and not pregnancy, between um, mothers and fathers. And I think when we do that, we will start having equitable division of labor, equitable division of responsibilities, and probably a more equal, loving community and society. Well, very well said. Because when we try to do things equally, we are ignoring that, first of all, not just expectations, as you're saying. I mean, one of the ways to to equalize expectations is to expect the same thing from a mother as you expect from a father or expect mm-hmm. the same thing from a father that you expect from a mother. But there are physical differences. And frankly, now, you know, in 2023, certainly not when this book was set in 2023, there's even different yes, ways to become exactly. a mother. So many different ways to become a mother. So are we even treating mothers equally? You opened up some some really big, important questions there. Oh, I love thank that. you. And I, I love what you're saying about, you know, there are so many different ways to be a mother. And I, I think, um, at least I try to kind of in, in the majority show how the different ways in which we do mother each other um, is, is important and helpful. Yes. You know, it's beyond biological, you know, motherhood beyond birth. Um, and I think that, you know, as, as, as we grow as, as a society, we're seeing that, um, particularly in, in, in certain pregnancy protections, at least in here in California, um, as it's, you know, it's evolving. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll continue to evolve. But um, I, I think it is important to, to recognize the differences because that's essential in order to kind of embrace our, our you know, our differences and enjoy them and, and become, you know, a stronger community. Yeah. And to break down those yeah. expectations, because that is the root of the separateness of it. But if there's more kind of models in that, uh, I think we'll start to break down those expectations and then, and then make room for Absolutely. a lot more. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to talk about the title, The Majority. This feels like it has many meanings, um, which I love. Um, thank you. Yeah, I, I always found that really fascinating that um, we do we publish the dissent. Um, and, I, and I think that's, that's, that's a rarity, you know, and it doesn't mean it necessarily is the law at that point. It might become in the future, as you said, but we as a society do embrace it, at least on paper. And so the majority, as you beautifully noted, was... Um, 
you know, it, it has this dual meaning. Um, initially, an early title was actually Memoirs of a Justice, because the book is written as a memoir of this justice, you know, as a, of this woman telling her story, finally getting all of her secrets and all of her, you know, doubts and her insecurities out on the page for the world to see. But, uh, you know, it ultimately evolved into the majority. And it was exciting to kind of think about it in that capacity. Um, because yes, the majority opinion um, is what becomes a law and in the common law. And so I think it's, you know, it's helpful for people to to know that. But it's a disturbing, it's a bizarre, wild phenomenon to know that women are the majority population in America. And yet we are the minority in power by a significant amount. And it, it is nowhere near the place in which we will be even at an equal playing field, let alone the majority. And so, uh, you know, there's a host of organizations now that are really exploring this. The supermajority is one, um, and, you know, started by um, Cecile Richards and, um, you know, many, many others. But they're really exploring and talking about this reality that we are the, the minority in power and the majority population, which wasn't always the case. So when the book starts off, it's just kind of like teetering and towards the, you know, um, you know, as the century, as the 20th century moves forward, um, women do become the majority. And I thought, I think it's important to just really explore that and really ask questions about, you know, who should be in power? What does that mean? What does power look like in America? And um, when I said earlier about kind of the Supreme Court being kind of the closest thing we have to a modern throne, you know, it's I don't think that's necessarily the presidency because that's you're you're in and you're out as a lifetime appointment. That is something that you can think of like a crown as an appointment, um, which in many ways is what royalty is and doesn't leave until they step down or die. And so um, that also makes it kind of an interesting exploration of what, what is the majority and what, who should be in charge of the majority and how long should we be wearing the crown, so to speak? Yes. Oh, I love that. The other title makes perfect sense, but the majority and all it encapsulates and make you think about is really the perfect oh. title. So <laughs> you just said two things that lead me to the same question. You're talking about kind of power, and this is part of a beautiful part of the end of the prologue too. The power is in the narrative and who gets to tell the story. And you also said kind of in the original title, the memoirs of the Supreme Court Justice, she wants to get it out and kind of have her own narrative and have a recollection of her experience. So that leads us to being a writer, which is what you've done here. It's fiction, but it's what you've done here. You've also written memoir. And we want to, we are all three of us, all lawyers and writers. And we've spoken to so many lawyers and writers and every path is different. But I wanted to talk about yours. And you wrote something about identity and how that was a part of the the process of becoming a writer was feeling like, am I a writer? Like, is this part of my identity? I want to talk about that a little bit, either the path that you took or, or that feeling of identity. Oh, gosh, I feel like I could talk about this forever. <laughs> such a, it's such a great conversation. And um, in talking about because, you know, I, I, <laughs> right, especially when you're, I think, in this lawyer writer kind of dichotomy. Um, and I think I always kind of joke about it as, um, like I'm like 90% writer, 10% lawyer, and I don't know if it kind of breaks down at a certain point. Um, and my, my husband always jokes, okay, is he talking to lawyer Liz or writer Liz? And <laughs> which one is going to be less confrontational? Um, but the thing is, I, I, 
it was always writing for me. Writing was everything. That's all I wanted. You know, that's what I wanted. But having that background of kind of whether, you know, I don't know if it's that kind of Jewish American background coming from Holocaust survivors, but having, needing to have some sort of a stable life. Um, and so I was always interested in the law from a kind of conceptual sort of place. And I didn't know what, um, whether I would ever publish. And so I actually studied creative writing in college. And then um, yeah. I kind of tried to do everything that I thought writers did. And so fresh out of college, I taught ESL in Costa Rica. And then I worked um, in publishing in New York. And then I got my MFA in creative writing. And um, and I came back and I taught English in a couple law schools. I'm sorry, at a couple universities in Philadelphia. And I was teaching so much freshman English that I had no time to actually write. And so I thought I'm working at three different universities and adjuncting, having basically six classes, can't make, you know, rent, can't do health insurance. And I'm doing all this so I could write my novel. Um, and I was, I was exhausted. So I thought, you know what? I was always interested in law school. Um, I took the LSAT because so many people in, law, in college took the LSAT. So I thought, I'm going to take it again and I'm going to try. And so I, I got in. I signed with a literary agent for my first book that was never published, um, like a week before I started law school. And I thought, I have three years to publish this <gasps> book. And of course, it it never got oh, published, wow. and thank goodness it deserve, yeah. it belongs in you know a drawer. But then I spent three years in law school thinking, okay, I have three years to sell this before I graduate and need to practice. And so, of course, you know, again, it didn't happen. But then in my last semester of law school, I moved to Texas and I worked in a capital punishment clinic, and I learned all about capital punishment. And so that I, that actually ended up leading to my first published book, The Execution of Noah P. Singleton, because I the worked execution. on execution. Yeah. And yeah. so um, I I still kind of kept a foot in the law, but I never really did this kind of full lawyer life and then writer life. Um, it was always kind of this kind of toggling between two fields in order to make writing happen, as I didn't know if it was ever going to happen. Yeah. And so um, as you too. Same oh, here. How, can so you tell we. me more about yours? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Just the toggling and the like knowing from a very young age, I wanted to be a lawyer and a writer and feeling like I needed to become a lawyer to be the stable, you know, really important, um, you know, s- stable part of my life. And But I always went back and forth, and I still feel like I'm 90%. I loved your percentages, 90% writer, 10% lawyer. I don't think I can ever lose that 10%. It is, unlike your story, I did know I wanted to be a lawyer, and I really was committed to it for like maybe from the age of five. Now, these were delusional ideas, but, but, and, and mostly given to me from, entertainment, which is also probably another signal that I was supposed to be in writing novels. But I, I've i always in this whole time kept a foot in each realm and could never really quite step out. But in my heart, it was similar to what you're saying. I think I always knew I was a writer and the law, the law part was <laughs> helping keep that dream alive. Yeah. 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 You're a litigator, right? So that there's like a narrative with that. That's so interesting. Wow. I, I'm, I'm curious about yours as well. It's a, it's a real struggle. Uh, I think I still practice law, so I'm probably 90, 10 the other way, I guess. So <laughs> flip flopped. Exactly. Um, I feel like every case is another story. 
being a writer. And we've had so many authors like yourself that were formerly lawyers yeah. turned writers. Yeah. And so it's kind of turned the mic, if you will, on ourselves to, to really talk about it. And one of the things is really this identity issue. And I think that's a tough part. Like you, when you call yourself something else, um, well, one of the ways we look at ourselves uh, here on Pop Fiction Women is actually in something very non-lawyerly and not steeped in facts and law, but in a more woo-woo way, and that is with astrology. So we always ask our authors, what's their sign and do they relate? I'm Scorpio. Um, and I love being a Scorpio. Um, and what's really, I, I love that, that this is a part of your podcast. I have this wonderful writing group and everyone is really interested in, in this. And so I have a couple members of my writing group that actually do character work based on their character signs, which I think is fantastic. So they're doing, you know, you know, they do the full character breakdown before they even get into scene work. And it's based on those character signs. And so for the holidays this year, it was that I found this, this really great, it was like a pop-up jewelry shop at like a street fair. And there were these vintage um, astrology signs. And so that's what I got for each of the members of my writers group. So they were like, you know, a Scorpio, a couple Sagittariuses, Libra. I love that. I, I feel silly. I should have worn it today and I forgot. Really? I, I, I should have. But um, but yeah, I, I have a Scorpio that I wear I every day. I love that story so much. And first of all, we weren't sure where you were going to, you know, we asked this question to every single guest we have. And sometimes it lands and sometimes it doesn't. And we always know how to roll with it. But you were like, oh, yeah, I'm a Scorpio. I'm definitely a Scorpio. And then that story about your writing group, I love it. <laughs> Do you know, I'm embarrassed to say, and I don't think I've ever told anyone this. I have a book coming out next summer and it's called The Astrology House. And I did not, I'm like whispering, I did not have the astrological signs for all of my characters before, not even after it was bought. Now she's correct. My editor, who's amazing, she is correcting that for me. She's like, you gotta know these and they all have to be part of the story. But I did not do that. I did for my, I will say I did for my, for my main characters, but some of them, you know, the ones I identified with the most, I gave them signs, but that is amazing. I love that story. Um, so yeah, lawyers are I feel like we embrace this sometimes, especially the lawyer writers are like, you got to believe in something. It's, you know, just a little bit, <laughs> a little bit. I think so. I think so. I think there's parts of being a Scorpio I'm not like, but I think there's, I like what you're saying about something to believe in, something to have yeah. additional, you know, with, with your character for yourself, your own identity, like we're talking about or, or your characters. And I'm excited for your book. I can't wait to read it to hear uh, all about that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But I will now have to admit that now that I've admitted it here, which was totally inspired by your story. I just, I don't know why I was like, I don't need to do everybody's. I will say for like the three main ones, there's actually five points of view, maybe four by the, by the time we finish. But I had their sun and moon, sun and moon for sure. So I, I don't know. I went deeper in some ways and then other ways just completely ignored it. But <laughs> anyway, so say, we're obviously... I've never yeah. done it for my characters. So, But yeah. you did yeah. it for your main characters. That That's what matters. Yeah. 
I think if you write a book and it's titled The Astrology House, <laughs> I think you have to. It's non it's non-negotiable. So we're obviously loving astrology here, which I love, but we also like to ask all of our authors what you're loving that's out there that you're consuming that maybe fills your creative well a little bit. Any novels, uh, any memoirs, any TV shows, anything that uh, is kind of you're a little obsessed with, we like to hear about. Oh, gosh, of course. Um, I just finished reading Monsters. Um, Claire Dieter. By Claire Dieter. And yeah. I was blown away by it. I thought it was fantastic. It was such a wonderful exploration of, of art and culture and what do we do with the art of monsters. And, and I thought that she really explored beyond just the uh, kind of a question about Roman Polanski and Woody Allen, um, but got into kind of this question of, you know, what do we define as a quote-unquote art monster? Um, and when she even mm-hmm. kind of continued the path towards kind of women and motherhood and what that means about being a mother and an artist, and I was really fascinated by that. Loved it. I listened to it as an audiobook. Um, and mm-hmm. I, uh, I also... Um, just read Curtis Sittenfeld's um, romantic comedy, which I love. I love Curtis Sittenfeld. Um, and yeah. in terms of I, loving Yellow Jackets, have you read? Have you seen Yellow Jackets, the show? Oh, we love it. We love it. Yeah. You covered it, and I missed that one. Oh, goodness. I'm gonna have to go back and listen. Um, it is such it's a great so show. Good. I can't get enough of it. It's wild. It's so original. It's it explores so many interesting topics beyond you know just a high school soccer team that's lost in the woods. Oh, I we love that show. Yeah. Exactly, and I love how it's kind of you know when when it's really getting into women and female friendships, but it's not just kind of a cliche, you know, women are, are Lord of the Flies situation. It's really really getting into the conflicts at the source of the the narrative are just so compelling, and their casting is yes. Perfect. So good. So good. And equally compelling in the present day as it is kind of when you're unraveling what happened back there. The young versions of all of the actresses that play the present day actresses, they knocked it out of the park. It's what you just said, but I'm just expanding it to everyone. It's so good. Yes, which I understand that's really hard to do, especially, you know, when you're writing in fiction is having that dual storyline because somebody always wants to, you know, they're, they're connected to one storyline more than another, but they do a great job. Um, absolutely. Ugh. They are the gold standard for that. I agree. I, it's something I'd like to try in a novel maybe someday, but the dual timeline, but it is really hard because I do usually pick a favorite, but this show is, like I said, the gold star. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about The Majority, which is out now. Kate and I both really loved, I won't speak for you, Kate, you're right here, but I, we both love this novel. Thank you so much.